Good morning, church. My name is Isaac, and I have the pleasure of serving here at Cornerstone as one of the pastors. And I have the honor today to end our sermon series on how to pray. Today's word comes from James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And if you have your Bibles with you today, would you turn with me there? And as we turn our Bibles here, would you stand for the reading of God's word as our act of worship to him? Once again, James chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The grass withers, and the flower falls. The word of the Lord forever. May be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy and inerrant word. We thank you that you have given us this word so that we can know you more, and so that we can glorify you. We ask that at this time that you would open our hearts and open um, uh, my heart as well. Help me to faithfully preach your word, and may we all glorify you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw uh, that we must pray in all circumstances because God is sovereign. Today our central focus point is this. As a community of faith, we are to pray for one another. Now, this sounds very simple, but it's actually one of the things that uh, a church would often forget. And I think a lot of the times we tend to focus on the fellowship aspect, which is good, but we need to be also reminded that the church is also a house of prayer. So not only do we pray for ourselves individually, but we also pray for each other in a communal sense. Now there's two commands that are given in today's passage. The first command is for elders to pray for the sick. And the second command is for us to pray for one another. So let's look at the first command. We see that the elders must pray for the sick. You know, growing up, uh, I grew up in a Korean church and uh, being in a part of a Korean church was that elders were very unapproachable. And they were kind of scary even. Uh, they were very distant and they were always deadly serious. And the way to become an elder was actually to you know, either be very successful in your job, be rich, or to be very popular, to have influence in the church. But when we read the Bible, um, you know, it doesn't really say that you know, elders have to be popular, but instead it says something else. The, ba the Bible characterizes elders or overseers to be men of God. In 1 Timothy 3, we see the character requirements for those who aspire to be elders. We see that they must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. We see that being an elder is a high and mighty calling. The responsibility is to have oversight of the church, to be godly examples to the church, and to also be teachers in some sense. But here in James, he adds one more responsibility, and he tells the elders that you ought to be men of prayer. See, elders as overseers are not only to deal with church policy, but they're to shepherd and to take care of the flock. And one of the ways to take care of the flock is to pray for them when they're sick. In verse 14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil on the name of the Lord. Now, we touched a little bit about this last week, but when you're suffering, you pray. When you're cheerful, sing songs of praise. But when you're sick, it's hard to do all of that. So what do you do? You call on the elders and ask for prayer. When we're weak, we need someone that is strong. There are times when Brooke, my daughter, uh, tries to do things independently. I love it and I hate it. I love it because she's growing up. And so it's, you know, it's great to see you know, your child grow. But then I also hate it because she's growing too fast. But there are moments when she tries to do things on her own and then she can't. And so she'll try, 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 and then she'll fail. And then she gets frustrated. And then she'll say the magical word of dad in Korean. And it melts my heart and I run to her and I help her with whatever she needs. In the same way, when we are weak, when we feel as if there's no energy left in us, but the most natural posture for us to take is to call on someone who's strong. And the people in the church who are essentially the strongest are the elders. And I don't mean the elders are able to deadlift 500,000 pounds and they're, you know, brolic in that sense, but I mean strong as they are mature in their faith. These men are men that pray. But please, don't get me wrong. The elders are not, I'm not saying that the elders are perfect. By no means are they perfect, but they are to be godly men, godly men who fix their eyes on the Lord. Today, the session and cornerstone are godly men who are tasked to shepherd this church. In doing so, they're to pray for those that are in need. So if you're going through a season of weakness, a season of sickness, a time where you need healing, whether it be physical or spiritual, call on the elders and ask for prayers. Another thing that we see that elders are tasked to do in verse 14 is this, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Oil during these times were used for medicinal purposes. Olive oil in particular was used to heal cuts or uh, heal bruises. On the other hand, oil in the Old Testament was symbolized uh, to uh, mean consecration, to set someone apart. And so this meant that the elders would use the oil to bless someone or dedicate this individual to the Lord. But notice that 
this was to be done in the name of the Lord. So they don't do it in the name of the king. They don't do it in the name of the prophet, but instead they did it in the name of the Lord. And so we see time in and time after again that the Lord is the one who is the source of healing. So the faithful thing to do during times of sickness is to pray and to let God do the rest. Now, a question you might be wondering is, if I'm sick and I have the elders pray for me, then does that mean I'll be automatically healed? And the answer to that question is no. The elders are not God, nor do they have supernatural powers. You know, it's not once they become ordained, it's not become, they don't become like wizards or, you know, people that just have these magical powers to do crazy things. Uh, but if that's the case, then why would we have the elders pray for us? You see in verse 18, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So the elders have faith. The elders are to pray in faith, which leads us to another question. If I'm not healed, does that mean that the elders did not have enough faith? And the answer to that question is also no. Here's why. Faith isn't something that we conjure up. It's, it isn't magical powers that make prayers effective. Faith is having full confidence in God who is in control of your life. So it doesn't necessarily mean that every prayer will be answered when prayed in faith. Instead, what it means is that we trust in knowing God is in control and that he knows what's best for us. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Andrew preached the sermon on the Lord's Prayer, which reminded us that God gives us what we need, not what we want. When we pray, there'll be times when God doesn't heal us and there'll be times where he answers our cries. But whatever outcome we receive, we must trust and know that God is good and that he's in control. You see, praying in faith doesn't mean you know the outcome. Praying in faith is trusting in God no matter what the outcome is. I remember my friend used to have this um, magic eight ball which supposedly gives you advice or tells you the answer to your questions. And so we would do dumb things, and so we would be like, is so-and-so dumb? And, and then we'll shake the ball, and then the answer will sometimes say, like, most likely, or ask again. And I think oftentimes we think of prayer in that sense where we shake up magic eight ball, and we're saying, God, are you going to heal me? And we think it's going to be like, most certainly, or try again. Uh, but... Um, that's not what prayer and faith is. Instead, praying in faith is asking a God who knows the truth, asking a God who knows all things, asking a God who's in control. Therefore, no matter what outcome is after prayer, we trust, we know that God's will is being done in each and every one of our lives. God knows what's best for us. He knows what we need. So the first command, elders are to task to pray for the sick. But the second command is this, that the whole congregation is to pray for one another. Now, if you look with me in verses 16, it says this, therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, James here takes a broader look at the church and all the congregational members and states that the role of prayer is not just to be done on the elders, 
but it's to be done by each and every one of us. The whole church is to pray for one another. In order to understand this, we actually need to understand the context because it kind of seems so random that James kind of just bring this thought out and say, confess your sins. But if you look at the context of it, in verses 15 to 16, if you look with me, this is what it says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. Here we begin to see that there's this relationship or a correlation between sickness and sin. James says that we are to confess sins and then you will be healed. But if you look carefully, it says that the sick is saved and the a sinner is healed. What in the world is happening? Does that mean that every time a person is sick, every time a person gets cancer, every time a person goes through uh, you know, motion, uh, life uh, seasons of being, uh, you know, catching different various diseases, does that mean that you're living a life of sin? You see, there's people today who believe and profess that. And so when, they, when you're going through sick times, they begin to kind of uh, say and preach to you that you're living in sin and you need to repent. Uh, and they begin to cast out spirits of you know, sickness and stuff and like that. But here in James, I don't think that's correct, right? And, I, and the reason for this is in John 9, verses 1, 2, and 3, which Jesus says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, the blind person was not blind because of sin or his parents' sin, but more so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what's the answer? Is there correlation? Is there a relationship between sin and sickness? And the answer is maybe. Let me clarify. I say maybe because there are times when sin is tied to sickness. There are times when people go through sickness because they're living a life of sin. For example, if you're like me, I get overly anxious. And, and most times anxiety can take a toll on our body. Well, being overly anxious can cause us to get headaches and even chest pains or even have bodily symptoms. But at the same time, there are times in your life when you just get sick. Sometimes sickness just happens because we're just weak. So, since we don't know whether or not we're sick because of sin or just rather sickness, what should we do when we're sick? I think the best thing to do is to examine yourself during times of sickness. It never hurts. It never hurts to do a double check on your life. One of the last things I do before I leave the house is to look at my mirror. And why do I check the mirror? I check the mirror not just because I want to, you know, check myself out in the mirror, but I do it because I want to make sure that I'm presentable. You know, there's been oftentimes growing up where I'll leave my house and, you know, I'll have like food all over my teeth or I'll have, uh, you know, food stains all over my shirt or my shirt will be inside and out. Or, and um, I've learned over time that you need to check yourself. You need to make sure that you're presentable every time you step out. Or nowadays, I just ask my wife, do I look okay? But for the most part, all of us use a mirror to self-examine. In the same way, when you're sick, 
We should be doing a double take of our heart, making sure, is everything okay? We do this because sin doesn't always cause sickness, but sin indirectly causes all sickness. And the reason for this is because of the fall in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, sickness and death are now the consequences. They're the byproducts of what happened, which is why James brings to attention that in in these moments, we're all weak. We're all prone to sinning. Therefore, we must partake in the communal aspect of confessing and praying for one another. Today, as a community of faith, we must confess our sins and pray for one another. Now, I'm not saying everyone, now turn to the person on your left and right and start confessing every dark secret that you have um, because that would not go well and it would kind of be weird and it wouldn't be a great idea. But instead, what I'm saying is all of us should find a group, a good group of people, people that you trust, people to begin confessing and praying for one another. Now, I'm not guilt-tripping you because I'm the pastor of community life, and I'm saying you must now join a community group, but I think there are some biblical warrants to it. We ought to be part of a group of believers. We ought to confess our sins. We ought to be praying for one another. And one of the focal points of our community groups here in Cornerstone is, as you guys probably, probably know more than me, is centered on the fact that we pray for one another. And I pray that all of us would be able to share our burdens with each other. I pray that we would be able to continually uh, spur each other on to pray and confess our sins. So a question. When we pray for one another, how do we know if prayer works? In other words, are our prayers effective? Yes, our prayers are effective. You see, we pray today because God commands us to do so. And when God commands us to do so, we say yes, and we obey. But much deeper than that, prayer actually works. The latter half of verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then James gives us an example of Elijah. And he shows us how powerful prayer can be. In verses 17 to 18, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Notice something that's happening here. Here, James is downplaying who Elijah is. Now, most often, the temptation is to elevate the people in the Bible. And most often we put them in a pedestal, especially Elijah, who is this great prophet who done miraculous wonders in the Old Testament. And we see that God has used him mightily, but the reality is Elijah wasn't just a prophet, he was also someone, a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was like us. He was human, meaning that he, was a sinf- he had a sinful nature. Even though he was a sinner like us, he prayed and God worked powerfully through him. In the same way, all of us are sinners, but we pray uh, to God. Uh, when we, uh, sorry, when we pray, God can use our prayers. But there seems to be a contradiction here. In verse 16, James says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. If we're sinners, then are we considered righteous? In fact, the Bible tells us that 
we're not righteous. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us today are considered unrighteous because of the very fact that we broke God's commands. And if this is true, then how can we pray effectively for one another? Does God even listen to our prayers if we're considered unrighteous? Well, the only way we can pray effectively and powerfully is because of the righteous one. Who is this righteous one? See, he's the man whose nature was like ours. He's the man who is greater than Elijah, a man who humbled himself to the form of a servant so that we can be made righteous. Paul in 2 Corinthians says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it's Jesus. It's because of Jesus who came into this world to take on the nature like ours that we are now made righteous. Therefore, we, par- we pray powerfully for one another, not because we're all perfect people. We pray powerfully for one another, not because we have the best resumes and the best accolades, but the best successes. We don't go to God and say, God, look what I've done. You owe me this. No, we go to God and say, God, I can't. I don't deserve your love, your grace. You see, we pray powerfully by depending and leaning on the person and work of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. The one who took the punishment so that we can be made right with God. Because of Jesus, we can now pray powerfully for one another. And when we realize this truth, I think it helps us understand that today, all of us have access to God. You don't have to be a certain type of person to pray for one another. And I think it's easy for us to want to go to, and want to, go to a specific type of person to ask for prayer. But in fact, you don't. All of us today have the same access to God. In fact, you don't need to go to seminary to pray for someone. You don't need to confess your sins in a booth here. But by the grace of God, all of us have access to God because of Christ. I used to tell my youth group students this all the time. I would say to them, you might not have a voice in making change in the church, but you do have a voice in prayer. You can contribute and do wonders in the church by praying for the church. In the same way for all of us today, you may not be an officer, you might not have a fancy title, but you do have a voice of prayer. And what we're called to do today is to use your voice in prayer by praying for one another. I wanna end with one exhortation, a very practical one. Join a community group. Now, I know the deadline was yesterday and we extended the deadline one more day, but if you can't commit, if that's too much for you, um, you can join Bridge Ministry if you're in your 20s and 30s. If not, you don't fit that criteria, you can join Home Builders. But if that's too much for you, there's men's prayer meeting that meets on Saturday mornings. There's women's prayer meetings that are meeting. And 
my heart and I, I hope that all of us would be able to join at least one of these groups so that we can begin to confess and pray for one another. And I don't want to forget the youth group students. Youth group students, you too have a ministry where you can join. And that's Friday nights. You can begin confessing your sins and praying for one another. Cornerstone, let's be a church who loves God by praying and confessing our, our sins to one another. Let's pray. At this time, let's take a moment to respond. And let's also pray for our church, that we would be a church that prays.